Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and welcome to our program, the teaching of the book of Jeremiah. We've entitled our, our program, The Expectations of Jeremiah. We're going through the different prophecies that Jeremiah gave, and as we shared in the introduction, there's a number of prophecies that he gave uh, that go through the whole range of the life of Israel all the way to the end of the ages. And we're looking forward to seeing all of these things that Jeremiah had to say. Now, we are in the early chapters. In fact, right now we are in chapter 7, beginning at verse 12. And Jeremiah is continuing to give this repeated message about destruction is going to be coming to Jerusalem, uh, to the temple. And in the first part of chapter 7, to recap uh, a little bit of what we had in the last program, when Jeremiah was called by the Lord to stand at the gate of the Lord's house, the people going in and out of the temple, uh, he was to warn them and tell them that the destruction was coming and would include the temple. But those that were opposed to Jeremiah... And by the way, there were many prophets in the days of Jeremiah, false prophets, who were speaking positive things. Jeremiah is speaking of this judgment coming, but there were many more prophets who were speaking of good things would happen, peace would happen, and that they would be good. Now, when Jeremiah positioned himself outside the gates of the temple and began to prophesy this, those that were opposed to him began to speak very positive of the temple. And in fact, if you look at verse 4, do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were giving an emphatic, the false prophets were giving an emphatic uh, rebuttal to Jeremiah by saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the Lord would never judge this place. And the language here, when it repeats itself, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, is a typical Hebrew technique. Now, a lot of translators say, well, they were speaking it to being the superlative. Um, that is not the Hebrew way of language. When they see a repeated phrase, it's not to the superlative. It's it, each thing has its own meaning. And in this particular context, because we understand some of the concepts of the Torah, the reason why it was repeated three times is that's kind of a signal that they are trying to give the sign and the evidence that what we're speaking about the Lord, opposed to you, Jeremiah, we're speaking the truth, because the truth is given by the evidence of two or three. So they would speak it three times to say, and there's the evidence of the truth. We're speaking the truth. What you're speaking, Jeremiah, is false. Well, in truth of fact, it's the exact opposite. Uh, he's the true prophet. They were the false prophets of that day. So with that as an introduction, let's see what else Jeremiah has to say, remembering he was standing there at the gates of the temple and is speaking these things. Verse 12 of chapter 7 begins this way. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, 
and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Shiloh is a community north of Jerusalem, and today uh, it would be in the area of what's called Bethel. Bethel means the house of the Lord. The reason why it's called Bethel and it's Shiloh there is because when the children of Israel first came into the land, there wasn't a Jerusalem. Uh, the city had not been formed yet. Uh, that's not where they took the tabernacle to. Instead, they took the tabernacle to this place called Shiloh. They took it to there in the land at what we call Bethel today, and they set the tabernacle up there. Now, what's fascinating about this is, is to this day, you can travel up to Bethel. And in fact, I've done it on several tours before. And you can go up where you walk into this, this plateau that's there at Bethel. And there's this rock formation that's been laid out, which was the base rocks for the perimeter of where the tabernacle set. And in fact, they have the base rocks where the, the sanctuary used to set. And you can see the pattern of the ancient tabernacle right there in the rocks um, there at Bethel, at Shiloh. And as you know, when the children of Israel came into the land, there was a lot of conquesting going on. And the, the Ark of the Covenant was even stolen once by the enemies. And there was a lot of battling going back and forth. And that area, even though it's where the tabernacle first went into the land, even it, that ground, was subject to judgment by various enemies of Israel and was a place of conquest. So he's reminding them, and he's saying, hey, you remember Shiloh? You remember where God established the tabernacle in the land? Look at it. Look what happened to that place. Was it not subject to judgment by enemies? And, and the answer is, well, yeah, it, it was. He said, so if the tabernacle was subject to those things, do you think the temple's not going to be subject to those things? You think the temple is suddenly exempt from destruction when, when the tabernacle in Shiloh you know, came under this oppression as well? Verse 13, and now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I, have, I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to the place which I gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. That's the pronouncement that Jeremiah is making. You saw what happened to the tabernacle at Shiloh. This is what's going to happen to this temple here in Jerusalem. Um, very profound statement on his part. There shouldn't have been anyone who would have continued to persist and say, no, well, God would never harm the temple. He would never allow the enemies to come against the temple that has been built. Yeah, he would. You know, he allowed the tabernacle, you know, to be laid siege to by the enemies up at Shiloh. Verse 15, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all of your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. By the way, let's go ahead and just, Jeremiah is saying, let's go ahead and, you remember the northern kingdom? You remember the house of Ephraim, Jeroboam, all those northern tribes? Where are they? They're not in the land at this point. Why? 
because the Assyrians came in and God allowed the enemies to come in and take them captive. At the, diet, the day that Jeremiah is speaking to the house of Judah, the whole northern kingdom has already been taken captivity. He said, if, if God allowed his people to be taken captive from there, wouldn't you think it won't happen to you? And honestly, those that were in Judah actually thought that. They thought because they had Jerusalem and they had the temple that they weren't going to be the same as the house of Ephraim and the northern tribes. And Jeremiah is saying, no, take a look and see how God treated his people up north. Did he not allow them to be taken captive? That same thing's going to happen to you. You know, he, he dealt with the tabernacle that used to be up there. He dealt with the people that used to be up there. The same thing's going to happen to you. The temple here and to you as well. So he's going on and he's, he's illustrating God is going to do the same thing with you that he's done in the past. Verse 16, as for you, do not pray for this people and do not lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. Wow. Wow. You know, normally we think that if we see someone get into very, very serious trouble, that we can pray for him, intercede on their behalf to God. But if God is the one that's inflicting the punishment, he does not hear that prayer. He does not take your counsel. If he's carrying out judgment, he's carrying out judgment. He's not going to listen to you make your appeals to intercede on their behalf. Do you not see what you're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. And the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out libations to other gods in order to spite me. So he's saying, it, it, you're not even, some of this you're not even doing it because you have a zeal for the love of a false god. You're doing it just to, to, to be against me, to be opposed to me. Wow. That, I mean, it's one thing to, to commit a sin in error because of ignorance. It's a whole other thing to just be willful and defiant, and I'm going to do it in spite of you. You ever, had, you ever been in an argument with somebody or had a conflict with somebody where they're doing things against you in spite of you? It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Jeremiah said that's what the people are doing to the Lord. Verse 19, do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? Everything that you... Let me go ahead and just say this to you. God is big and powerful. You and I, and if we collectively got a whole bunch of other people to agree with this, there's nothing that you and I could do um, that's going to overpower him. We're not going to force God to do anything. Um. And so if we did something in spite to, to irritate and to cause you to change your way, he says, that doesn't work on me. All it's doing is piling up on you. It's, it's just going to do harm to you. Um, verse 20, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field, and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Again, here's another segment of how Jeremiah is pronouncing the judgment that come upon Jerusalem, upon all of the cities of Judah, upon the people that are in the land at that point. 
and again reinforcing upon them this message of impending judgment that's coming from the north. Uh, Verse 21, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings, uh, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and we will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Again, why is he saying that? Well, one of the arguments against Jeremiah was, well, we are, here's the temple system, we're bringing the sacrifices, and, and this is what God purposed for us. And because we're doing what God purposed for us, that way we have the essentials of what God wants to do with us. Therefore, he will not judge us, he will not harm us, he will not destroy the temple, because we're doing exactly what God said. However, Jeremiah is correcting him and says, that's not what the Lord said when he brought him out of Egypt. He said, the purpose of me bringing you out of Egypt is not so that you can make sacrifices. The purpose for why God brought Israel out, in other words, the real purpose of why God has called the people of Israel and the real thing that God is pursuing with the people of Israel, he says, is obey my voice, I will be your God, you will be my people, you will walk in my way which I command you, that it may be well with you. If you want it to be well with you, if you want God's favor for you, then do what God has said, not this religious activity. And again, this is a case of where Jeremiah is having to make this argument in his day against the religious people uh, who were saying, well, our religious practices are what will deliver us. By us going to the temple and offering up burnt sacrifices and so forth, burnt offerings, that way God will preserve and protect us because that's what he's most important. That's what he's most interested in us doing. And he's basically countering the argument saying, no way. Let me give you a modern day application of what I've heard. As I have gone out and taught, particularly about the end of the ages, and the judgments that are given to us by the prophets of Israel and the Messiah about the end of the ages, particularly the Great Tribulation. I've had a lot of Christians tell me that's not going to apply to them. It's not going to apply to them. There's no possibility of them going through the Great Tribulation. God would never judge me. And the reason is because I'm in the church. And by me going to church on Sunday mornings and being faithful to the church and tithing and being a member there at the church, then I will be exempt. And they go a little bit further and they say, we will be raptured out and we will not be subject to all of those judgments that will fall upon the earth at the end of the ages. That's the same argument that was being made in Jeremiah's day. Now, in Jeremiah's day, it didn't work. And what makes you think it's going to work this time? Obviously, it is not. Making the argument that, well, the real purpose of the Messiah was so that I would go to church, that was not the real purpose of the Messiah. The real purpose of the Messiah was to provide for you salvation and deliverance, a sacrifice of the Lamb of God so that you might receive redemption. Now, as to worship practices... That is a different matter from that. 
Um, and the same thing is true of what Jeremiah is trying to say in his day. God's purpose in bringing you out of Egypt was to have a relationship with you. He would be your God and you would be his people. By the way, the Messiah, when he came to do the work of redemption, was so that he would be our God and we would be his people. The goal is exactly the same. The difference between what our Heavenly Father did the first time versus what the Messiah did the second time was the first time he was a corporate redemption for all of the nation of Israel, all of the people of Israel, to establish a nation before God. The Messiah came to do it personally for every one of us. It's the same redemption. It's the same purpose, the same goal. It's the same salvation. It's the same God. We are the same people. And um, Jeremiah is making that point uh, profoundly here at this point. Now, for those of you who may know a little something about your Bible, I want to take you back to, uh, because somebody might ask this question, I want to take you back to when Moses is addressing Pharaoh, because the subject about going out and sacrificing is mentioned. And so let me take you back to a conversation that Moses had with Pharaoh uh, when Moses was demanding uh, that, that Pharaoh let the people go. And in this particular came, uh, example, we see here, this is Exodus um, chapter 8, uh, verse 25, it says, And Pharaoh called for Moses near, and he said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said it is not right to do so. In other words, he's saying, Go sacrifice in the land of Egypt. And he said, No, 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 it's not right to do so. For we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. And, um, and then Pharaoh said, well, okay, well, I'll let you go that way, but I'm going to put restrictions on it. And, of course, that didn't happen. So is that a verse that says, hey, uh, the purpose of the children of Israel to leave Egypt was so that they could go out into the wilderness and they could sacrifice, uh, make sacrifices to the God of Israel. That's what Moses seems to have said. No, that is not the purpose. What he's doing is he's giving a contrasting element to the Egyptians, enough of an answer to justify it, said, you need to let the people go. Um, and he's not necessarily giving the whole goal of what God wanted to do with the children of Israel. What the whole goal was, and this is what was told to Moses to begin with, I want you to bring the people back to this mountain, back to Mount Sinai, which wasn't in Egypt. I want you to bring them through the wilderness back to this mountain. That's the real goal. So what is he saying to Pharaoh? He's basically saying to Pharaoh, we don't want to remain in the land of Egypt and try to worship our God. We have to leave Pharaoh. That's really what the argument is. And so the purpose of leaving Egypt was not so they would go and make sacrifices. It was to get out of Egypt. Why to get out of Egypt? So that they could become his people and live in God's promised land. You can't live in God's promised land if you're still sitting in Egypt. Um, let me give you a modern corollary to that. If, uh, and I'm talking about modern, modern day brethren, and I've said this expression before. Uh, 
If you're planning on um, going to the promised land, you know, the kingdom, the first thing you have to do is you have to be willing to leave Egypt. And if you love Egypt too much, you're never going to make the journey to the promised land. If, if you love the things of this world more than you love the kingdom of God, you're not on the journey to the kingdom of God yet. You have to be willing to leave Egypt first. And this is what Moses is telling Pharaoh. We have to leave before we can get to where God wants us to be. And the journey requires, and the same thing is if you're going to turn your life over to the Lord and pursue the blessings of the Lord, you have to repent from the life you have. You have to consider your life to be the old man and let him die before you can become the new creature that God wants to make you, the new man that he wants to make you. And if you think you can hang on to a part of that or put one foot here and one foot there, it doesn't work. Let me go a step further with you. Let me take it even further. If you're a new messianic and you want to learn messianic ways, you want to learn the ways of the Torah and, and uh, keep feast and festival and, and so forth, you, you have to be willing to leave whatever you're in already. If you're in the church, you've got to be willing to leave it because the church is not promoting and is not pushing for what the Torah is about. You have to be willing to leave that before you can go completely to it. And I know a lot of people, you know, they would like to have one foot here and one foot there, and they think that they're noble souls and they're going to be a bridge between the two. It doesn't work that way. If you want to go to the promised land, you have to be willing to leave Egypt. And until you get Egypt out of you, you're not going to be the people that God wants you to be. All right, enough preaching on that. Direct application of Jeremiah to our day. Uh, chapter 7, verse 24. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their own evil heart and went backward and not forward. The goal was to go forward, and instead, which direction did they end up going? Backwards. That can't be, that can't be the right way. Verse 25, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did evil more than their fathers. And the history of Israel, once they entered the land, did they apply the things that Moses had taught them? Did they apply the leadership that, that he had established when they were in the wilderness. No, that all came apart at the seams. They started doing all manner of different things. Dan was the first tribe to get into idolatry. There was conflict between the different tribes. The enemies were interfering. The, you know, he sent judges to them. There was all kinds of conflicts. Why? Because they're not obeying what Moses had instructed them to do. They had walked away from the things of the Lord. He's reminding them of that. This is a history with you. This isn't just now. This is what's been going on. Look back and consider the past. This is what we've been doing. That's what's got to change. That's got to stop. And being stubborn and stiff-necked and refusing to listen to the Lord is not the way to get it done because that's, that's what the history of Israel has been. 
Verse 27, and you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord your God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Take up lamentations on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. The, the ultimate generation that receives the wrath of God is the last generation. And one of the things that people, I've actually had people ask me this question. Now, at the day of the Lord, Monty, are there going to be some of the people that were here, are they still going to be in the Messianic, or me in the Messianic kingdom? Are there still going to be some mortals like from here over there? And I keep trying to say, no, the prophecy does not say that. The prophecy says that at the day of the Lord, this final wrath of God, the, he will exterminate sinners out of the world. Isaiah chapter 13 says, I will make mankind more rare than the golden wedge of Ophir. The golden wedge of Ophir was a legend about Solomon's gold mines, that there was a solid bar of gold. It was a legend. There was no such thing. I will make mankind more rare than a legend of something that didn't exist. That's pretty severe. If you go to the prophet Zephaniah, who's prophesied the day of the Lord, he says, I will exterminate all of mankind. There's no allowances there for anybody to make it from this previous world. If you're not part of the redeemed and being delivered by the Lord at that time to go into the kingdom, there's no way you as a mortal are going to make it from this world into that one. That's how severe that punishment is. And essentially, he, he's trying to explain to the children of Israel how serious the judgments of God can be. They can be that serious. The generation of his wrath would receive that. Verse 30, For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, and defile it. You know, they brought stuff into the temple that was not supposed to be in there. And kind of offensive to the Lord, you know, like very offensive. And they have built high places of Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Heman, to burn their sons and their daughters in fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. They killed their own children, sacrificed their own children to different gods. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no, be called, no more be called Topeth, or the valley of the son of Heman, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topeth, because there is no other place. And the dead bodies of people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. Then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land will become a ruin. Uh, essentially what he's saying is when the slaughter comes to you, people are going to die in the land and nobody will be there to bury them. They'll lay on the surface of the earth dead, and they'll decompose uh, in that manner. There won't be anybody to bury them. That's how severe the punishment will be. All right, we're now ready for chapter 8.
At that time, declares the Lord, they will bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, and the bones of the princes, and the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem from their graves. And they will spread them out to the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven which they have loved, and which they have served, and which they have gone after, and which they have sought, and which they have worshipped. And they will not be gathered or buried, they will be as dung on the face of the earth. Just what I just got through saying. He said, I'm even going to bring all the dignitaries and all the leaders, and I'm going to spread their bones all over the surface of the earth. Nobody's going to be buried in a ceremonial tomb. Nobody's going to be that. You're all going to be on the surface of the earth, right in front of the sun and the moon and the stars and all the stuff that you worshiped instead of God, and that's where your bones and your bodies are going to decompose. And death, verse 3, and death will be chosen rather than life by the remnant that remains of this evil family that remains on all the places which I have driven them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Now he's going to shift gears, and you'll notice in your text that there's an indentation in the text of the margins, which means this is a separate message now that we're getting a look at. This is where Baruch takes a particular message from Jeremiah, and it says, verse 4, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened and heard. They have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own his course, like a horse charging into battle, even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the, and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. If you look at the creation, all the animal kingdom knows the stuff they're supposed to do. Birds know when they're supposed to migrate. Horses and other animals know the things they're supposed to do. How come the children of Israel don't know the ordinance of the Lord and they don't know what they're supposed to do? Verse 8, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit, and they heal the brokenness of the daughters of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed, and they did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment shall they be brought down, declares the Lord. Again, this particular section here is addressing the people that he's talking to, the wise men. He says, you know, how, how can you be so wise? when what you're doing is foolish. To the scribes, those that copied the Torah, if, 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 you, if you copy the Torah but you don't do what the words say, then, then your pen is nothing more than a lie. 
you're saying something different than what you do. Um, and it's a little bit like, you know, what you do and, and what you say. Well, in the case of a scribe, he actually writes it down. When he writes it down and then does something else, there's a lie that has taken place here. And he's inferring, by the way, that the, the job of a scribe was a very honorable job. And by attacking the scribes and saying, well, the problem must be not with what you did. The problem must be with what you wrote. It's like attacking them kind of like right in their wheelhouse as to the thing they, they esteem themselves the most, most with. There's a very damning way of addressing each of these different uh, groups uh, in, in the judgment impending on them. Verse 13, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord, there will be no grapes on the vines, no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall wither. And when and what I have given them shall pass away. Why are we still? Why are we sitting still? Assemble yourselves. Let us go into the fortified cities. Let us perish there, because the Lord our God has doomed us and given us poisoned water to drink, for we have sinned against the Lord. We waited for peace, but no good came. For the time of healing, but behold, terror. From Dan is heard the snorting of his horses, and at the sound of the neighing of the stallions, the whole land quakes. For they come and devour the land in its fullness, the city and its inhabitants. And behold, I am sending serpents among you, adders, which there is no charm, and they will bite you, declares the Lord. When he references Dan, he's talking about the tribe that's in the far north. And when he says that Dan is hearing the snorting of horses, he says, that's the army, you know, they're on the cavalry. That's you're hearing the cavalry of the army of the enemy, which is coming from the north, and they're coming down through Dan first, to the land of Dan uh, first, as they come down toward Jerusalem. Again, repeating the prophecy, it's going to be the Babylonians that come and get you. Chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer, a wayfarer's a lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them. For all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And they bend their tongue like their, like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. And they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor, and do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily. And every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. And everyone who deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth, they have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Their dwelling is in the midst of deceit, though deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is expressing a lament, and he's basically saying, oh, if I can only weep enough tears. Better yet, if I, if I knew a place I could go and escape from these people. You know, he, he's talking about the desperation of, of uh, what it's like to be in the midst of them uh, and all that, that's, that's going on. Uh, verse 7, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and assay them, for what else can I do? Because of the daughter of my people, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit. With his mouth, one speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets an ambush for him. Shall I punish them for these things, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? The obvious answer is he's going to avenge himself. He's going to put them in a burning fire and melt them down like metal and to remove the impurities from them. Verse 10, For the mountains I will take up a weeping and wailing, and for the pastures of the wilderness a dirge, because they have laid waste so that no one passes through. And the lowing of the cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the sky and the beasts have fled. They are gone, and I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals. And I will make the cities of Judah desolation without inhabitant. Again, the description of when the judgment comes, this will be the end result. Verse 12. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a desert? so that no one passes through. And the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. But have walked after the stubbornness of their own heart, and after the Baals, as their fathers taught them. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them this people with wormwood, and give them poisoned water to drink. And I will scatter them among the nations whom neither of their fathers have known, but I will send the sword after them when, until I have annihilated them. The, uh, that particular passage now begins to speak to an even greater judgment than the one of Babylon. Let me review some history with you. Um, Jeremiah spoke against uh, Jerusalem and the people of the cities of Judah, and said the Babylonians are going to come and get you. They did. Well, the remnant, as you know, of Judah came back to the land, and yet after the days of the Messiah, in fact, this is at, the, the temple was destroyed again in 70 AD by the Romans, and the Jews that were in the land, they were taken captive again. They didn't learn the lesson from the Babylonian captivity, and the and and this time they got scattered to all the nations, all the nations, not just Babylon. So when you hear Jeremiah say in verse 16, I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until they have annihilated. He's talking about something even beyond Babylon. Because they've heard of Babylon and Jeremiah is talking about, no, I'm going to send them to nations that they've never heard of and their fathers have never heard of. You and I right now are living in nations that our father Abraham never heard of. Jeremiah is going to repeat this word picture for us when he speaks more specifically to the ultimate judgment that will be upon Israel scattered in all the nations, when Judah will be scattered to all of the nations, not just Babylon. 
There were multiple judgments and multiple times throughout the history of Israel in the effort for us to learn all of this. And this is where, uh, in the modern times, where we recognize all this history, and we can see, like in this verse, oh, um, Jeremiah has been telling them about the destruction of Jerusalem, but he just alluded to another judgment that will happen even later, you know, when they get scattered to all the nations, even places your fathers don't know about. That's more of what we've seen in the greater exile that's been in the nations since those days of Jeremiah. Um, when we get into a little bit further into the book, you're going to see that laid out very clearly. You're going to see where Jeremiah has prophesied specifically about Babylon, and then there's a time when he specifically prophesies about uh, the children of Judah and all of Israel being scattered amongst the nations, and then he's going to specifically talk about uh, how they will be coming back from all the nations and how that restoration of the whole house of Jacob will take place. We'll see that in future prophecies. Chapter um, 9 at verse 17, he continues on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women um, that they may come in, and send for the wailing women that they may come, and let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may shed tears, and our eyelids flow with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How are we ruined? How are we put to, we are put to great shame, and we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Now hear the word of the Lord, O ye women, and let your ear receive the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing, and everyone his neighbor a dirge. For death has come uh, up through our windows and has entered our palaces to cut off the children from the streets, the young men from the town squares, and speak, thus declares the Lord. The corpse of men will fall like dung in the open field and like the sheaf after the reaper, and no one will gather them. All right, so again, we have another repeat here. But this time, Jeremiah says, he puts a, a, a different spin on it this time, and he says, I want you to call for the women that, that wail and mourn. Now, what is that? Would you accept this general fact that when you get a, a group of men and you get a group of women, and if you have a very, very sad thing that has taken place, in other words, something worthy of crying, the women are the ones who are going to cry first. Would you agree that it's the women that will cry more profusely? Um, men have a tendency to, to kind of get more angry, whereas women will truly weep, and they'll wail when they weep. Uh, if you have scenes in the middle, had seen uh, different scenes of the Middle East, for example, of the conflict in the Middle East, where you see these uh, Arab women uh, wailing and crying uh, because of the death of their husband or their children. And you see the, the profound um, way, very vocal and very visible way that they are wailing. And that's what Jeremiah is calling for. He says, I want you to get the women in here that really know how to cry. I want you to get them in here who know how to really wail, because that's what we're going to have. We're going to have, this is going to be so severe 
that the women are all going to wail in the worst that they've ever you know wailed and and he's actually kind of making a statement to the men do you really want to see that do you do you want to see the women weeping like that because that's what's going to happen um i know for uh, as a husband and i know other husbands uh, have one of the things that will break you down as a husband and affect you emotionally more strongly than anything else is to see your wife cry. To see her in such pain and sadness that she weeps kind of uncontrollably. It's, it's like the strength of the man is no strength. It's like it just melts. He, he, he can't do anything about it. And it's just a terrible terrible feeling uh, to see um, your wife in pain, to kind of pain where she is weeping and crying in pain. Um, and it's just just debilitating to the man. And that's what Jeremiah is calling for. He says, bring the women in. Let them weep in front of you to get the sense of, of, of what is going on here. Very profound picture. <coughs> Pardon me. Verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, and let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord that it will punish all who are, who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised, uh, Egypt and Judah, Edom and the sons of Ammon, and Moab and those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised at, of heart. Now here's a picture uh, that really those from the house of Judah would truly understand. Circumcision is, the rite of circumcision was instituted by Abraham, our father, and it is the sign of that the descendants, when you're circumcised, is the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and with his descendants. And it has to do being part of the Abrahamic family and part of the heritage and blessings of Abraham, the promises that God gave to Abraham, including the whole promised land. Now here is Jeremiah prophesying about destruction that's going to come to that promised land. And he's basically saying to him, and he says, now, uh, those of the circumcised, you remember that's the sign of the covenant with Abraham, the promise of the promised land. He said, um, you've become like uncircumcised. It's like you don't have the promise of the promised land. Why? Because the promised land has been taken away from you. So you might as well be uncircumcised. You might as well not have a covenant, be part of the covenant with Abraham. You don't have the sign of the covenant of Abraham because, look, you don't have the land. It's a very poignant way of, of pointing this out um, as to, again, another way of expressing the judgment that would come upon them. All right, we're now ready for chapter 10. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens. 
all the heavens, although the heavens are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of craftsmen, and a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak, and they must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, do you, they, for they can do you no harm, nor can they do any good. This is the uh, passage that uh, speaks very clearly to an evergreen tree. This is the passage where it describes an idolater is a person who is going to be doing something which is a custom of the people, a custom of the land. And they're going to get into idolatry because this is a custom. And what they're going to do is they're going to go out and cut this evergreen tree down. They're going to hook boards to the bottom of it so it doesn't teeter or totter. And they're going to bring it into their homes. So they're going to set it up, and they're going to set it up as an idol. And, um, and, and it's going to be like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. In other words, it's going to stand there very stately and not move. It just stands there. And, but everybody takes note of it. And just like when you go out into a field and there's a scarecrow that's been set up, what's the first thing you notice about the field? The scarecrow. You don't, notice, you don't even notice what's the crop. It's, oh, there's a scarecrow. And you look at how the scarecrow's decorated. Oh, what kind of outfit does he have on? And what does he have for a head? And, and what, what kind of shirt? And so forth. When you see a Christmas tree, what do you look at? Do you look at the house that it's sitting in? No. Do you, do you want to know about the family that lives in that house? No. You look at the tree, and what do you look at? How is it decorated? What kind of light is on top? What kind of sparkles are there? What, kind of, what are the colors of the lights? You know, how is it set up? How large is it? Boy, Jeremiah has kind of nailed this thing about what idolatry is about. Perfect picture of it. And today, we don't have to look very far um, to see it. In fact, in the time of this teaching, we're approaching that season where the Christmas trees come out, and they're everywhere. I mean everywhere. And it's a sign of how the customs of the people have come and are opposed to the commandments of the Lord. Now, we claim that we all believe in God. You know, I, I love the expression, the reason for the season. Um, the reason for the season, if you want to know the truth, is to make money. That was from the very beginning. That's what it was. They just adapted uh, the idea of the birth of the Messiah to it, but has always been, the reason of the season has been for economics. And in fact, in modern business today, they plan their annual budget based on how much money they can make in this season. And they evaluate whether or not they've had a successful year or not based on the economics of this season that has this. So to me, this is one of the most shining examples of just how subtle and how prolific um, 
idolatry can become part of the community. They decorate it with silver and with gold. And they make it beautiful. And he said, that's, that's what idolatry is. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Israel. And if you're looking for a modern reason today for why the book of Jeremiah is relevant for today, I don't think you have to go any further than this forest part of chapter 10 to explain what the message of Jeremiah is about in our day. All right, beginning at verse 6. There is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great, and great is thy name in might. Who would not fear thee, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is thy due. From among, for among all the wise men of the nations and in all of their kingdoms, there is none like thee. They are altogether stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of the craftsman and the hands of a goldsmith, violent and purple are their clothing. They're all the work of skilled men, for the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King, and His wrath um, the earth quakes. And the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that, they did, that did not make the heavens or the earth shall perish from the earth, and from under the heavens. The, one of the things that we know that the Lord has told us about himself, and if you were to sit down and do a little resume on God, one of the things he says of himself is, I'm a jealous God. I do not share my glory with other gods. And we need to come to terms with that. We need to understand that that's who he is, that's the God we serve, and therefore it needs to be profoundly almost burned into our soul that we cannot in any way, shape, or form participate in anything that is idolatrous or any God in any way, shape, or form that is at odds with or in parallel with or against the one true God. This irritates him to no end, and he will have his day in which that all of those other gods perish. And you don't want to be standing there beside one of those, hanging on to it uh, when that day comes. All right, we are now at Jeremiah chapter 10 and at verse 12, and that's where we'll take up our next episode of the expectations of Jeremiah. Shalom, everyone.